This is Sunday morning on WAJR 104.5 FM, 1440 AM WAJR, and we're sponsored this half hour by the WVU FCA. Campus Director Kirby Myers is with us, and uh, Kirby, good morning. Good morning, Kyle. Before we jump into this, you can give us a little insight on, I know you've spoken through the weeks and through the months about your relationship with the football staff, in particular head coach Neil Brown, and they got very good news this week. They're coming back. Very good and, news. And uh, without getting into the uh, the nitty-gritty, the detail of it, um, it's good for continuity's sake, and it's good that someone who invests in your organization right. and in the FCA as a whole is sticking around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to have the type of access that we do have, you know, FCA meeting in the building, uh, my opportunity to meet with players and and do ministry there to them and to the coaches. I'm very thankful for another year for Coach Brown. How has that grown in the last? So you've been here two years, right? Uh, yeah, year my second football season, so yeah. going on two years. Um, yeah, it continues to grow. I mean, more and more athletes involved, um, more coaches involved. So just really grateful for the opportunity. You want to reach more than football, obviously, and you do with Teresa working with the female athletes in particular. But, again, football's the anchor. So when you're in there and you have great support in that building, it helps everything. Yeah, and, um, you know, football players are influencers as well. And so when you have them involved, uh, I think it's going to bring other athletes to be a part of our group. All right, so good news. Yes, sir. All right, very good. All right, good morning, and um, thank you for listening today. We're going to return now to our study of the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. And we'll be in verses 12 to 22 today, looking at the holiness of the Son of God. And so let me read that passage for us this morning. John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Well, we all understand that God is a holy God, at least I hope we all do, and we are reminded of this truth as we read through the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 16, we read, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Isaiah 6, the most famous passage on the holiness of God, we read of the seraphim, the angels, who call out to one another saying, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is holy. It is the essence of who he is. That is the only attribute in Scripture that is elevated to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. We never see in Scripture that God is love, 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 or peace, 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 or even wrath, 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 but he is holy, holy, holy. And he is so holy that he cannot tolerate sin. The Bible says he cannot look upon sin and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so we return to our study of the Gospel of John this morning, where John writes to show his readers that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity, that he is the God-man. We understand this from the beginning of John's gospel, where John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, and if God the Father is holy, then we understand that Christ himself is holy. And we see this attribute on display in the passage that I just read for us today. And this is the passage that we will look at today, and Lord willing, next Sunday as well, where Jesus cleanses the temple. Today will serve as somewhat of an introduction to this passage, in this, to this event, because when we read of the cleansing of the temple, we see Jesus in a way that we really do not see him anywhere else in the Gospels. We read of Jesus cleansing the temple in Matthew 21, verses 12 to 17, You can read about it in Mark 11, verses 15 to 17, and then again in Luke 19, verses 45 and 46. But I would argue that those three passages is the account of the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple, and that the second cleansing took place during the Passion Week, during his final week on the earth before he was crucified, uh, three years after the event that is being described here in John chapter 2. We have read these passages many times, and we have seen this scene depicted in numerous movies about the life and ministry of Jesus. And I believe that those movies that showed Jesus angry as he came into the temple are correct. Jesus was indeed angry. Look at the, the language here of the Apostle John in verses 13 through 16. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business." The disciples understood that Jesus was angry. They most likely had never seen him like this before. And I love what John tells us in the next verse, in verse 17. The disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was angry. He made a scourge of cords. He drove the money changers out of the temple. He poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. He not only drove the money changers out of the temple, but the animals as well, the sheep and the oxen. You see, when the holiness of God was at stake, when the worship of God was at stake, 
Jesus took action. And here we see that to be furious action and forceful action. But Jesus was in complete control. Yes, it was forceful, but it was not cruel. Yes, it was passionate, but it was not chaotic. And the most important thing that we must see here is this. Jesus did not sin. Jesus did not do anything sinful. And friends, if we give in here and subscribe to liberal scholarship and liberal theology and compromise on the sinlessness of Christ, we lose everything. In 1993, I was 23 years old, and I went to Promise Keepers, which was a large gathering in the 90s and the early 2000s where men would come together. And I I went to this event in Boulder, Colorado, at the University of Colorado. There were 50,000 men there. Uh, The singing was tremendous in that football stadium outside. But each of us, as we registered, were given a book called The Masculine Journey. It was by an author by the name of Robert Hicks. And near the end of that book, Hicks talks about the movie that came, in, came out in the 1980s, a movie called The Last Temptation of Christ. I remember when that came out, I was 12 or 13, maybe, teenager, and uh, there were many Christian boycotts, many churches were boycotting that movie. This was a Hollywood production because there was a scene in that movie where it was depicted that Jesus was lusting after Mary Magdalene. And Hicks, in his book, The Masculine Journey, affirmed that that did really take place in real life, that Jesus lusted after Mary Magdalene. But if that is true, we lose everything. For Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If Jesus lusted in his heart after Mary Magdalene or any other woman just one time, if Jesus sinned while cleansing the temple just one time, if he was angry and that anger led to sin and sin against God, we lose everything. For Jesus would not be the perfect lamb of God. He is not a lamb without blemish. He is not our perfect sacrifice. He therefore did not atone for our sins. And he is not our Lord and Savior. We are still in our sins today. And we have no hope for salvation. And we will be tortured in hell forever. That is what is at stake. If we give in here, we lose everything. We lose the Bible, which is our source for truth, the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, God-breathed word. We cannot give in here. We cannot give in on the sinlessness of Christ. The Bible argues for a perfect and sinless Savior, and we must defend this glorious doctrine, the sinlessness of Jesus, or again, we lose everything. I was not there for this cleansing of the temple, neither were you, nor was I there for the second cleansing during the Passion Week. Neither was anyone who is alive today. It was not recorded on DVD or even VHS or on film, and there was no one there taking pictures. But I believe with all of my heart that Jesus did not sin because the Bible teaches that Jesus did not sin. 
And so we must defend this. And we must know where to go to defend this. Does the Bible argue for the sinlessness of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. And I want to encourage you to, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke 23. Just go back to the left, probably it's just a few pages, as we look at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Beginning in verse 1 of Luke 23, Jesus is before Pilate. It says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. And so here we have Pilate examining Jesus. Verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Let's see what happens when he goes to appear before Herod in verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see him, see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. And so that's Jesus before Herod. Look now in verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor ha- n- no, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. And so here you have three, two men, Pilate and Herod, both examining Jesus and finding that he has done nothing wrong. Well, let's fast forward just a few verses up to verse 39. This is during the crucifixion. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then if you would read with me verses 44 through 47. It was now about the sixth sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. So you have Pilate, you have Herod, you have the thief on the cross, and you have the Roman centurion who was in charge of Jesus' execution, all claiming that Jesus was an innocent man, that he had done nothing wrong. And I would argue that means that he was sinless. But those men could have been wrong in their observations. Pilate, Herod, the thief, the Roman centurion, they didn't know Jesus well. They had met him just that week in these final days. These men could have been wrong. What if Jesus had sinned when he was younger? They most likely uh, did not understand or ascribe to the virgin birth of Christ. What if they were wrong about the sinlessness of Jesus? Well, those men could have been wrong, but the Bible cannot be wrong, and the Bible argues over and over for the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. So I just want to look at some of those passages. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says that he, being God, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Paul here is arguing that God took Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin or to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is known as the great exchange, where I exchange my sin for the righteousness of Christ. It's the greatest trade in the history of mankind. There have been great trades in sports over the years. This is the greatest trade ever. My sin my filth, my depravity in exchange for the perfect righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. Keep turning to your right to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is right before James. Hebrews chapter 4. And I want to read verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What a great couple of verses. Jesus is our great high priest, the Son of God. He is a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses because he is one who is tempted in every way that we are. We can never go through a temptation and go, Jesus, you do not know what this is like. Hey, you lived without the internet, without Instagram, without pornography, and you don't understand my plight. You don't understand the temptations that I'm going through. No, Jesus has been tempted in all ways that we have, and we are being tempted. But one main difference, Jesus never sinned. So Paul tells us that first. 
in 2 Corinthians. The writer of Hebrews now tells that tells us that in chapter 4. Look over in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 26. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Wow, I love that verse. It was fitting for us to have a high priest in the person of Jesus, and these are the characteristics of him. He is holy. That means perfect, sinless. He was innocent. He had never sinned. He was undefiled by sin. He came into the world as a virgin. He was not born a sinful man. He was born perfect, uh, separated from sinners. That is the difference between Jesus and us. He was not a sinner. He was separate from us. That's the essence of holiness. God is separate, separate, separate from us, and Christ is separate from us because he has never sinned. And then finally, exalted above the heavens. We read that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. There is one seat at the right hand of God. It is reserved for Jesus alone, and that is where he is. Skip over the book of James and go from Hebrews to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter has a lot to say about the sinlessness of Jesus. 1 Peter 1 in verses 17 through 19. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter here is explaining who Jesus is, that he is the Lamb of God as John John the Baptist introduced Jesus to the world. And not only is he a lamb, but he is unblemished, he is spotless, he is perfect, he has perfect blood, and that blood that was shed for us is able to forgive us of all of our sin. Next chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning down in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Look what it says who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So again, Peter is talking about the sacrifice of Christ, the example that he is in suffering, and he says he committed no sin, nor was any deceit Found in his mouth. While he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And this is where the original languages are so helpful because it says in verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, which is singular, for the unjust, which is plural. So the the just one died for the unjust many. That's what Jesus did for us, and he did that for us so that he might bring us to God. There has only been one person in the history of the world who has been just and righteous, and that is Jesus Christ, who came to earth, who was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. I always like to ask this question, and I'm sure someone said it before me, and I've just copied that because as a pastor, you have to be a good thief in many ways. But someone said, how many times does God have to say something in order for it to be true? And if we believe the Bible and if we believe in a God who cannot lie, we know the answer is once. God only has to say something one time in order for that to be true. But it is always great when God says something more than once because it stresses the importance of something. And the Bible affirms over and over that Jesus was perfect and sinless. He is our sinless Savior. He is our perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb without blemish. You know, if you live during the Old Testament and you brought a lamb for sacrifice to the priest to be sacrificed, and as he would slit the throat of that lamb and pour that blood upon the altar, that had to be a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish. You couldn't bring a lamb with a broken leg or a cut-off ear And Jesus went to the cross as a perfect lamb without blemish. He has atoned for our sins, and God is satisfied with the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So again, that's kind of an introduction to this passage as we look at Jesus cleansing the temple, but I thought it would be important for us to look at the fact that in this great event where Jesus clears the temple, cleanses the temple, drives people out, turns over the tables, that in doing so, Jesus did not sin. He was in complete control. He had the authority to do what he was doing, and we'll talk about that a little bit more next time when we're together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Lord, without it, we have no hope. And Lord, I pray that we would be willing to defend this great truth, this great doctrine that Jesus came to earth, he lived a perfect life, he died an atoning death, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin, not one time. And so therefore he is our perfect sacrifice, and he is the way of salvation. Thank you for this time and your word on this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Sharing the Victory on WAJR for the Sunday morning, 104.5 FM, 1440 AM, WAJR presented by the West Virginia University Chapter of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and uh, Kirby Myers, campus director, was uh, presenting that message. And you can learn more about the FCA group. Go to the website, wvufca.org, and uh, an opportunity there to get to know the staff a little bit better. And also, they raise their own support. They are supported by the university, but not financially supported. They have access to the athletes. 
virtually every sport, right? That's correct. Okay, so the athletes there, the coaches are there, but uh, they do raise their own support. So keep that in mind as we enter this season of giving. If you like something you've heard or if you like the message, the approach that the FCA takes into um, presenting the gospel, and that's it. I mean, they hear the gospel message uh, each and every time the FCA gathers, whether it be a huddle meeting, whether it be a, a small group meeting, whether it be one-on-one, the um, the idea is to spread the gospel message among the athletes on WVU. So if that's something that you'd like to be involved with, uh, go to the website. You can contribute financially. Did I uh, spell that out? That was really good, uh, especially enough? as we come to the end of the year. A lot of people love to make year-end donations, and those are especially helpful to us as a ministry organization. All right, so WVUFCA.org for more. This is Sharing the Victory, Sunday morning on WAJR 104.5 FM, 1440 AM.